0: Uh, The man on our left there, you probably recognize, that's uh, FDR, President Franklin Roosevelt. The man on his right, his name is Harry Hopkins. And the following story was written about Harry Hopkins in the discipleship journal. It reads that Franklin Roosevelt's closest advisor during much of his presidency was a man named Harry Hopkins. During World War II, when his influence with Roosevelt was at its peak, Hopkins held no official cabinet position. Moreover, Hopkins' closeness to Roosevelt caused many to regard him as a shadowy and a sinister figure. As a result, he became a political liability to the president. A high-ranking political foe once asked Roosevelt, why do you keep Hopkins so close to you? Surely you realize that people distrust him and resent his influence. Roosevelt replied, Someday you may well be sitting where I am now as President of the United States. And when you are, you'll be looking at that door over there, knowing that practically everybody who walks through it wants something from you. You'll learn what a lonely job this is and you'll discover the need for somebody like Harry Hopkins, who asks for nothing except to serve you. Winston Churchill rated Hopkins as one of the half dozen most powerful men in the world in the early 1940s, and the sole source of Hopkins' power was his willingness to serve. Unlike FDR... Our chief executive, Jesus Christ, is not lonely in his job. But I do wonder sometimes if Jesus tires of the ratio that exists between the number of people who just want to ask him for stuff and the number of people who are willing to serve, to serve their king and others in his name. This morning, as we near the end of the books of Samuel, we come to another list of, of names, another um, kind of a hall of fame section, an honor roll. It's a list of military men who served honorably under David, but it's, it's more than that. There are some things in these verses that we can learn, some concepts that we can learn if we want to serve our King faithfully. We're going to read this morning 2 Samuel chapter 23 verses 8 through 39. We're going to read most of it anyway and see what we can learn from it. The first part of verse 8 just tells us what the whole rest of the chapter is or what it's going to be it reads, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. There, were a, a, there was a, a group of elite soldiers around David, both before he became king and after he became king. They became known as the mighty men. And what we're going to read today, we're basically going to be walking through the mighty men hall of fame this morning. That's what all of the rest of this chapter is. And the hall of fame starts, the first exhibit is three men who were like the elite out of the mighty men. And they're just called the three throughout this passage. The first of the three, his story comes to us in the second part of verse eight. It reads this way. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachimanite, chief of the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because of 800 slain by him, at one time. There's the first entry in the Mighty Men Hall of Fame. Joseph Bashabeth the Atec- Techemonite. His friends called him J.B.T. And I, yes, I just made that up because I don't want to pronounce his name ever again. I made it through it twice. Uh, he distinguished himself simply by the sheer number of enemy soldiers he was credited with. With killing. Now, a couple of things in general about these entries. First, that he was called a Tachimanite. Uh, he wasn't a foreigner. This is just his hometown. This would be like calling someone an imperialite, right? We can be an American and an imperialite at the same time, right? Also, we're told he killed 800 at one time. That doesn't necessarily mean he personally fought 800 guys and killed them all it this could be he's an officer he's a chief this could be the people under his command like we do this in american history too we could read about something that general Patton did in world war ii we know he wasn't out there by himself right uh um, thomas jackson in the civil war held his position like a stone wall and then was named stonewall jackson he wasn't there by himself right Well, J.B.T. wasn't by himself either, but he is the chief of the captains. His Hall of Fame plaque is right inside the door that he was among the three, and then the first among the three just means like he's the greatest of all. This is the Babe Ruth of the Israelite uh, or Mighty Men Hall of Fame. That's J.B.T. Second guy, comes in verses 9 and 10 as we move on to the next plaque in, <coughs> excuse me, in the Hall of Fame. And here's how it reads, verse 9. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle. And the rest of the men of Israel had withdrawn. Verse 10, he arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. So Eleazar's plaque tells the story of this one time when all of the rest of Israel had retreated And Eleazar was like, nope, not me and my guys, and they stood their ground, and he fought so long and so hard that his hand cramped up around his sword, and they had to pry that thing out of his hand at the end of the day, and that's that's what's on his Hall of Fame plaque. The next guy of the, the third of the big three, verse 11. now after him was Shama, the son of Agi, a herite, and the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the mix in the midst of that plot and defended it and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Shama's Hall of Fame plaque tells the story of the time when, uh, again, all the rest of the army had fled and the Philistines were ready to loot a field of lentils. This would look like a bean field to us, but in his and Shammah's way of thinking, because that was in Israel, those were God's lentils and these nasty Philistines had no business eating God's lentils. And so they took their stand and, and the Lord, it was their courage but, that God used, but the Lord brought about a great victory. And that's, that's the big three. Next, we move on to a story that I think is about these three, same three men. We're not told super specifically, but I think. It reads this way. So we move on to the next little exhibit in the Hall of Fame, and we read this story. Then three of the 30 chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam, while a troop of Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in that stronghold, in that cave, while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate and took that water and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord and David said, "Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? And therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. So the story goes: there was this time when David was leaving, leading the army, that he got himself in a bad situation. He apparently had to, to hole up in this cave. And there was a, a superior number of Philistines nearby that made it too dangerous for David and his men to leave this cave, apparently. So they're stuck in there. They have a limited water supply. And, and the three mighty men sneak their way into the cave and bring David even more troubling news. And that is, David, your hometown of Bethlehem is being threatened by a different group. Of Philistines, and that all of the, the bad news kind of builds on David, and he just he in a weak moment he shouts out this ex this this moan of homesickness. He basically says, oh, "I just wish I could have a drink of water from that you know from that well where I grew up. I wish I was out of this situation." I don't think David's serious. I don't think he thinks anyone will take him literally. But those three men do. They risk their lives to, to sneak away from the first battalion or group of Philistines. They fight their way through to the well. They fill their canteens from, uh, with water from the well of David's hometown. And then they retrace those dangerous steps back to give this water to David. And then David does something unusual. He dumps it out. This this seems like a silly story. First of all, it seems like a silly thing to risk your life to do. They risk their lives not to get the men in their water, which is important. They risk their lives to just get David, like his favorite brand, (laughs) A, a special drink from that From that well. This is what reminded me of that. The story of the woman with the the alabaster jar of of aromatic oil. What she did when she anointed Jesus' body seemed stupid to other people at that dinner party. What a waste. But to Jesus, Jesus was touched by the value he held in her heart. That's what happens with David here. David sees these guys come and bring this water. And the, and the reason he dumps it out, like if you risked your life for some reason to bring me something and I just threw it out the window, he'd be like, what the heck? But David, David he acts like the woman with the alabaster jar for a minute. Because he sees that water, that jug, that canteen full of water as the most priceless thing in that cave and he wants to give it to his king. He pours it out as a drink offering. Drink offerings were a thing. You could go to the tabernacle with, a, with an expensive commodity like oil or wine or strong drink and you could pour that out to God. And David says, this is so valuable. This is, this is, this is as valuable as if it were the actual blood of the men who brought it. I want to give this to God. And that's why David pours it out. As we move on in this hall of fame, we're going to read the entries of two more men who, who distinguish themselves above the rest of David's mighty men, but not quite, uh, they're not quite as legendary as the big three that we've been reading about. First verse 18 is Abishai. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah. He was chief of the 30. Uh, He swung his spear against 300 and killed them. So he had 300 kills to his name. And he had a, a name as well as the three. He was most honored of the 30. Therefore, he became their commander. However, he did not attain to the three. So he's not as legendary as the big three, but he's above the rest of the Hall of Famer's in the Hall of Fame. We've heard a lot about Abishai. We've been hearing about him since he volunteered for a dangerous night mission with David a long time before this, when Saul was still alive and still king. Next up after him, my favorite dude in the, uh, in the chapter, then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzael, who had done many mighty deeds, He killed the two sons of Ariel of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian, an impressive man. Now that Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a club and snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada did, and he had a name as well as the three mighty men. He was honored among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David appointed him over his personal guard. So Beniah here, old Benny, he's kind of the Chuck Norris of the, uh, of the Hall of Fame. Uh, he maybe wasn't the, the best like general, the best leader, but this is, he's on the all dark alley team. Like the, the, if there's one guy in the Hall of Fame you didn't want to meet in a dark alley, This is the guy. He is sort of legendary status just with being one bad son of a gun. There was the time he killed those two especially scary Moabites. And then, and this is his Chuck Norris entry, uh, Benny was uh, not, you know, lions didn't stalk Benaiah. Benaiah stalked lions. There was this time where a a lion fell into a pit on a snowy day. So it got itself stuck in this pit and the sides were too slick for it to get out. He jumped in the pit with the lion, right? If if you find like a bobcat or a mountain lion stuck in a phone booth someplace, don't go in the phone booth. Benaiah was the kind of guy that goes in there. I will pause so you can tell your kids what a phone booth is, Okay. They, they have some questions. Uh, there, then There's the other time where there was this Egyptian who had to be a mercenary because Israel never fought against Egypt in this day. This especially impressive Egyptian spear-wielding mercenary and Benaiah marches up to him with a club, yanks his spear away from him and kills him with his own spear. That's Beniah. By the way, uh, he, he becomes the chief of David's like personal bodyguard. Good choice. Uh, he also, if you read 1 Kings, he uh, he gets a special role in Solomon's coronation ceremony. And now the largest chunk of this section is is a list of men who who served in this elite unit that was just called the Thirty. And we're not going to read the whole list. Not only because I don't want to pronounce all their names, though that is part of it. But because I think you can glean what there is to glean just by reading through them. I'll tell you a couple things. It's called the 30, but if you look at the end, there were 37 listed. We know uh, there there were more than 30 who served in the 30. They served at different times. We know that because... The first guy listed, Ashaël. Uh, you might remember his story from early in the book of Second Samuel. He was the super fast guy that chased down a guy named Abner and got killed. He got killed, you know, uh, along in chapter two, I think, of this book. So someone else took his place. In fact, if you read uh, First Chronicles and First Kings, you'll find other guys that are that were put in the 30, and there might have been more or less than 30 serving at any given time anyway. Like if you read in the New Testament about a centurion, they were called a centurion because they, they commanded a, a, a group of 100 Roman soldiers. There weren't always exactly 100 troops uh, in those groups. Another thing we learn in, in this list is that David allowed non-Israelites to serve. Right, there were foreigners, which is uh, serving David in this, which is interesting. But the main impact, the main effect of this. So these guys are all in the 30. We started with the three who are like Babe Ruth and Michael Jordan of the, uh, of the Hall of Fame. Then we moved to this second tier that only uh, included two other guys. The rest of these guys are all Hall of Famers. They're just not Babe Ruth or Michael Jordan. okay. And we're just, if we were reading this for the first time, we're walking through this Hall of Fame, we're reading this list of names. And just like if we were on the mall in Washington, D.C., reading names on the Vietnam Memorial or or visiting the, the World War II Memorial or any of them, reading these names is supposed to engender, bring up inside of us feelings of honor and service and sacrifice, and bravery, and that's the impact until we read verse 37, Zelak the Ammonite, Nahari the Be'erathite, armor bearers of Joab the son of, Z- uh, of Zariah, Ira the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, and then verse 39 says Uriah the Hittite, and the list ends. And if you know the story of 2 Samuel, the good feelings sort of go away when you read the last name. Don't they? Because Uriah the Hittite, his his wife was named Bathsheba. Uriah was betrayed by King David. He's in the Hall of Fame. He served David well, but he was betrayed and murdered by David. In fact... If we were reading this for the first time, there would be even more of an impact. Because when we read the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, I told you that Uriah was one of David's mighty men, but the book hadn't told us that yet. This is where we learn it. So David committed adultery with this guy's wife. When Uriah wouldn't play along to unwittingly help David cover up uh, the pregnancy that resulted, David had him killed. And we're strolling through the Hall of Fame, minding our own business, and we get punched in the gut with the realization that wasn't just some private. That was one of your dudes, that was one of your guys. It's, it has to be intentional that the author put, put his name there on purpose. And that's how the story ends. It's the end of the chapter. Now what can you and I learn from a passage that, that basically is, a, is just a list of war heroes from 3,000 years ago? For the most part, if we're going to look for stuff for us to learn, it's not one-to-one application. In other words, we're not supposed to do what these guys are said to do. Here's my first application, right? Don't jump in a pit with an angry lion. Write that down, okay? Don't try to snatch a weapon away from a trained mercenary and kill him with it, right? Got that? Let's pray and go home. Now, if we're going to find things to learn for us from this, we've got to look for concepts for serving your king. Concepts for serving your king faithfully, courageously, and then see what we can take home from there. I found five things that I want to leave you with this morning. Five things about serving your king. And I hope Jesus, you know him as your king and your savior. He's still looking for servants. Now, the good thing with Jesus is we can't outserve him. He came not to be served, but to serve. But he has served. And now he is looking for servants. What's that mean? What's that look like? Five concepts from this chapter that help us know. First, a faithful servant will stand when others flee. What made two of, the, two of the three out of the big three notable? The greatest war heroes in Israel's history, not named David. What made them notable is they were men who stood when everyone else ran away. For us, in our culture, thankfully, standing to serve when everyone else would flee doesn't look like what we read about today. Like we, because we live in a very free country where we can come and do this freely. That We don't have to worry about our lives and our freedom and stuff like that, though sometimes we like to convince ourselves we really are in that kind of a fight. Our brothers and sisters around the globe, brothers and sisters in Christ, that's their reality, not ours. For us, what does it look like to stand when others wouldn't? Usually this is sort of social pressure. For us to stand when others would flee is to be willing to carry the name, the label of Christ, of Christian, of Jesus follower with us where we go, knowing other people think that's kind of lame. Our willingness to stand when others would flee is deciding we've got we to obey our master more than we have to obey the people around us, which means we can't always do what the cool kids do. And that's not a high school and junior high illusion. That goes for every one of our age groups. Sometimes if I am going to be committed to serving my king, I have to be willing to have tough conversations with people I care about that sound like, man, I know I have always, I know we have always done, but man, I, my faith just won't let me do that anymore. And that does take courage because you know what you're going to hear oh, you're too good for us now, right? And you go, no, no, I'm not. I'm a wreck, to tell you the truth. But like, he's too good. And like, just, that's where my priorities come from. And I, I man, I do not, I don't judge or condemn you. I just, uh. A faithful servant will stand when others flee. A faithful servant will be willing to color his or her conversations with The name, Jesus. Second, faithful and courageous servants are motivated by their love of their king. In this this passage, where that shows up the clearest is those guys that risk their lives just to bring David water from his home well. It just seemed, again, it seems so foolish. It seems like such a stupid thing to do to most people. But those guys, when they heard the desire of their king, their king's desire became their like priority. Why? Because they loved David. They didn't think, man, if I don't go do this, David won't like me. That wasn't it at all. They just loved David so much when they heard him say something he wanted. That became their priority. Are we motivated to carry water for Jesus, so to speak? When Jesus was talking to about motivation to his disciples right before he died, Jesus said this in John 14, he told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I always want to pay special attention to the order of what Jesus says. Jesus did not say, hey, I am going away to heaven and I'm going to be up there watching and I'm going to grade how well you do at keeping my commandments. And that's what's going to tell me whether or not you love me. You may be 80% love me, 70% love me. Some of the really good ones might, the overachievers might get a 94% love me. That's not what Jesus says here. Jesus is talking about motivation. Jesus says, guys, I'm going away. Do you want to serve me? Here's how it works. If you love me, the obeying my commandments will just come like automatically. Let me ask you here this morning. Are there things you want to be better in your life? Is there there bad stuff you want rid of? Is there good stuff you'd like to do? Maybe stop focusing on your willpower and start focusing on your love for Jesus. Because a funny thing happens when we get to know, do you know that's why we come to church? That's why we read the Bible? I hope you don't come to church because you think God won't like you unless you come regularly. I hope you don't read your Bible and have your quiet time and say your prayers because if not, you think God's shaking his finger at you from heaven all day. That's not the way this works. God, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God loves you because of his performance. But listen, if you want to grow in this thing, you've got to love your king. We come to church, you pay me because I'm the only one that has time now. It frees me up to have time to spend like 20 some hours a week Writing a research paper on a paragraph out of the Bible. And we all come and sit down, and I share what we can all learn. Why? So we can love Jesus more at the end of this than we did at the beginning of this. And then all week, I hope you're in the Bible. I hope you're in the Word. Why? Because I want you to know Jesus better. Because if you know Him better, you know what He's done for you, you know what He's promised you, you'll love Him more. And folks, when we love Him more, we get the obedience for free. It just happens. Those guys in the cave, they already had the love of David. And they heard David say, man, I sure wish I had a a drink from that well. i boom! they're out of there. Why? David was going to, David already loved them. He didn't need that. But their love for their king made them take risks others weren't willing to take. A faithful, courageous servant is motivated motivated by his or her love of the king. Third, faithful servants give their best to the king. We see this in the men who carried that water to David. We see this in David after he is holding the water, but the men carried to him. Um, When David, David is so touched and so moved by by their gift of that water, he sees that water as the best, most valuable thing he has. And what does he do with it? He wants to give it to his king. He wants to give it to his God, who is his king. Faithful servants, servants, when we grow in love, and our motivation in life starts to be taken over by the love of the king we begin more and more to give their best to the king. You know, if all we're trying to do is just sort of be, do our own thing and be good enough that nobody can tell us we're doing anything wrong. When we live like that, we will think we are there. Do you know that? We will all think we are there. Because all we have to do is look at somebody else who's worse than us. And there's plenty of those people. So no matter where we are at, we'll be able to justify the things that, you know, we don't do, that kind of stuff. But when we grow in our love of our King and that begins to take over our motivations, then it almost feels like like good enough isn't good enough. We want to give our best to the King, the best of our time. That's one reason why we want to start our week by coming here and like listening to a book report on a Bible passage and singing songs. It does sound silly when you say it like that. Why do we want to do? Cuz I want to give the best of my time, the first of my time. My energy, my resources, my finances when I grow in love of my king. I will more want to give my best to my king. Fourth. Faithful service is still noticed by the king. See this again with David. How touched David was when those guys risked their lives to bring him that water. The passage we read earlier, and I've alluded to a couple times already, the woman with the alabaster jar Right when she breaks open that that bottle and slathers that uh, years worth of wages all over Jesus, everybody else might think that's a waste, but Jesus, is like, you leave my girl here alone, man. She's done something beautiful for me. Jesus has not stopped noticing when people who grow to love him more, then that love begins to take over their priorities and they give their best to him. Don't think Jesus has stopped noticing when people give their best to their king. How we are judged as far as our eternal life goes is based only on what Jesus did. But listen, he still notices and here's the beautiful thing about the gospel and what it like frees us up to do. I, I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he was suffering under the punishment, the wrath of God that I deserve for my sins, right? So I'm never going to face any wrath of God. I am going to heaven when I die. So now when, when I have the opportunity to do something out of service for my king. It doesn't get me anywhere. I'm already not. I'm not doing that so God will let me in someday. I'm already in. I don't have to do that to make him love me. He proved he loved me. So now when I, when I do something just because I love him, don't, don't think he doesn't notice I want to say something else on number four here before we move on. Do you ever notice how many lists of names are in the Bible? You ever get frustrated by those? <laughs> Tell the truth. You're in church. You should be honest here. You're trying to read through the, through the Bible. You get to a chapter like this. An archer, archer for the Hittite. I don't even know how to say these words. What is this doing here? Don't be frustrated by these lists. Be encouraged. Among other things, you know what they teach us? God noticed. This is some 3,000-year-old servant. Get to the end of the book of Romans. There's just another list of names of, that Paul just says, hey, here's it was a good guy, did some good things. Here, God preserved that so that you and I would know he notices, even if nobody else does. And finally, a note about how this this chapter ends, right? All the good feelings we have walking through the Hall of Fame and all of a sudden, Uriah the Hittite. Faithful service is remembered by the king even when a servant is hurt, betrayed, crushed. And here's here's what I mean by that. Uriah deserves to be in the Hall of Fame even though maybe David really wouldn't have wanted his name to be included. God took note that what happened to Uriah was not proof that God was angry at him, that God wouldn't protect him. God remembered, God made sure his name was listed in a prominent position. The very end, the lasting effect. God, God takes note of people who are betrayed, Hurt, crushed. It's not proof that God hates you. But also, Uriah had a risk that we don't have. Uriah was serving someone he thought he could trust and he couldn't. The king we serve, sometimes we don't think we can trust, but we can. He will not betray us. He will not leave nor forsake us. The more we love him, we'll stand when others flee. We we will more and more have our motivations taken over by that love. We will find ourselves giving our best to our king. And we can trust that he will take note. He will write that down. So that when we stand before him at, at his judgment seat, he will have something there when he reads the roll. There's going to be lists just like this. When your name is called, and Jesus can say, "Let me let me tell you some stuff that so and so did just because he loved me." Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we serve a servant. That our King, Jesus, set the example first by coming to serve, not to be served, but to serve. And God, I personally, I want to serve you better um, this year than I did last year. I want you to grow in me the love I have for Jesus. And I pray that this church would be a collection of people growing in that same love. And I know what that love of Jesus will do. It'll begin to shape us in our motivations, in our priorities. God, show us what you can make out of a bunch of sinful people who grow in our love for our King. To your glory and your honor. And to the benefit of a dark world in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand with us and we'll finish our time.